You are listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ, 89.5 FM. I read in the paper, I heard on the news, all damn world got these mean old blues in this life, in this life, you gotta think for yourself. Good morning and welcome to today's edition of Cortez Currents. My name is Francesca and today we are going to have a down-to-earth conversation with stone sculptor Julie Glassby of Quadra Island. Why? Because Julie has been chosen to represent Canada in the 2020 Galcott Art Foundation International Sculpture Symposium in Nepal. Sponsored in part by the Nepalese government, this symposium will see 15 participants, artists from around the world, shape a work of art out of the local sandstone. Artists will be provided with a one-ton to five-ton piece of sandstone. They'll be working from February 17th to March 4th. Now, RCKTZ listeners know that Cortez and Quadra Island are home sweet home to all manners of talented, hardworking, wildly creative artists pushing themselves, pushing the envelope to the next level of skill and effect and communication. You may have seen Julie's astonishing stone bowls at our local Quadra Island Farmer's Market in the summer, bowls which uh, she hollows and shapes out of locally salvaged stone. Some of these bowls contain miniature bonsai gardens, natural environments to rest the eye on, and others just sit in their naked, empty splendor at the edge of a coffee table. But it is a long, long way from tabletop bowls to a five-ton sandstone sculpture across the world, or a fifteen granite, fifteen-ton, sorry, granite um, sculpture across the country. Julie has put Canada on the map before in these internationally recognized forums. She was the first entry to represent Canada in twenty years in Italy's twenty eighteen sculpture symposium. Now we're talking about the marble capital of the universe, Carrera, Italy, and it's no small feat to say that Julie from Quadra Island was invited back for another sculpture event. Julie made time to speak with us while in the midst of preparing to leave for Nepal. Here's part of our conversation. Julie, welcome to Cortez Currents, and thank you for making time during your busy preparations to be with us today. Why don't we begin with where you started in this world of international sculpture symposiums? How it started. How it started, indeed. Okay, in 2014, I applied online for a international sculpture symposium in St. John, New Brunswick, and it was for an internet and assistant position. I got that, and during that, I saw some big-scale sculpture for the first time. I didn't know anything to do with it. And so I realized I wanted to be part of this world. Like, it was pretty amazing. These ordinary people doing extraordinary things, you know. And it's something a little bit bigger in life. Anyway, so uh, during that time, I met a group, the International Children's Memorial Place, and they wanted to buy a memorial piece, a sculpture from China, essentially. And so... uh, I proposed to them that uh, we use local stone and we choose a local artist and uh, take a design. And so I came up with a concept. And luckily they went for it. 
And so we had a piece of, uh, sourced a piece of granite in Nova Scotia and brought it to PEI and did it in uh, one winter in a barn in Burlington PEI, Jim Evans' barn. And uh, so we got a 15-ton piece. That was my first solo project. Um, it was ambitious, I guess. Anyway, during that and after that, I got asked if I would be the general manager for the site manager for Sculpture Nova Scotia, their first international symposium. So I got to do uh, help the project, help six projects get off the ground, very literally, also with the rigging, but also get the tools and make the artists, connect the artists with the administration and the, the local area. So we got source the tools, source the stone, and, and have that happen. So that program went on for six weeks also, and after that, I went back to my studio, started working some more, um, and uh, Italy into uh, Vernaco, a sim international symposium in northern Italy in Vernaco, Fioli area. They uh, invited me to be uh, the first sculptor in 20 years to represent Canada. And so I got to go play with a piece of marble over there, and I have a public piece over there. Since then, I've been invited to two more symposiums in Italy, and uh, I participated in one in Germany. I went as a volunteer, as an assistant to Germany, because I knew some friends, and uh, they invited me to work the stone, and uh, gave me another piece of stone, so I kind of worked myself into a job there, and then I was invited back to Italy uh, to work as an assistant in the first uh, symposium, so I made myself a little job there, keep putting myself in the world of stone, and keep uh, focusing all the time uh, on, on rocks, it's a, it's a bit of an addiction, but it's, it's my favorite thing. You didn't go the um, formal art education route, uh, did you, Julie? My education, I got a degree in kinesiology, nothing to do with art at all. No, but I then I moved out west. I'm from the East Coast, and then I moved out west and decided to uh, work with First Nations youth. One of the programs that the Friendship House put on in Prince Rupert was to carve, get the youth to bring the elders in, get the youth to learn from the elders and carve. And so in the background, I was also doing it. And I carved my first spoon out of wood. And that's how I got into it. I, then I realized I loved to carve. And uh, I chose stones. I always had a rock in my pocket. Uh, I don't know. My draw to stones was instinctive. And so I started doing uh, little pendants. You know, if a friend had a broken heart or something, I'd find some rose quartz and carve that. It started with a little knife and a soapstone, and then I moved to a Dremel and was backpacking around for years doing this. And I started working with the First Nations children here at Cape Munge, and I loved that. My job there was really important to me and learned more about the art and inadvertently studied First Nations art a little bit. I mean, just in the backgrounds of things, but always drawn to it and uh, kept carving stones in the background, all my own stuff and just a hobby. You know, long winters here on the West Coast, long gray winters, and get a hobby. And then I moved into bigger stones just when I started the uh, the first symposium. A friend from the East Coast sent it to me online, the link, and said, you know, you really should apply for this. And I had still been just doing pendants. You know, we're going from one-inch, two-inch pieces of rock to 15-ton sculptures. just blew my mind. And then I jumped on board, and I really haven't looked back. Yeah. Oh, and my bowls. Well, I learned that first. I worked with a Japanese guy in my first symposium, and he makes circles inside of things. And I learned to make a bowl. And as soon as I learned to make a circle, I came home. And we have so much. I call them bowls of abundance. You know, we have so many beautiful resources here on the West Coast that I can go to the beach and pick ample material. And I came home and started making bowls and learning that my first thing I could do is a circle. Let's make a circle, you know, as many as I could. And so now I'm 
developed that, and the bowls are, you know, they're sold all over. Julie, on your website, you write, and I quote, Convincing a stone to become something else is no small task. It's heavy, it's dusty, it's dirty, and it's my labor of love, end quote. And, and might I take the liberty to add, it's sexy, it's sensuous, isn't it? Historically, stone has always had a very visual and tactile, sensuous element. That's why people buy stone sculptures. And speaking of buying, if you're interested in knowing how to buy one of Julie's pieces, you could find that information out on her website. I'll give that link at the end of the show. But for now, Julie, take us to that heavy, dusty, resistant a place. For instance, take us to that barn in, in PEI where you were working on the um, memorial sculpture of the lost child. It was definitely a labor of love. I think we got by on pure will on that project. Um, for one, PEI doesn't have that kind of stone, so we shipped it from another province, which was a, an ordeal on itself, a 15-ton stone coming across, coming across that big bridge and everything. We got into the barn, and we had to put it on a flatbed trailer, and just roll it into the barn because there was no way to maneuver the stone once it was in the barn. It had to be in the barn because winter was coming fast. And I didn't realize how fast it was going to come. It had been a few years since I'd done an East Coast winter. And it hit with a vengeance. We were in most days were minus 30. And the days were growing shorter and shorter all the time. The stone was vertical. So I did everything uh, standing and above my head. You know, it's... Uh, 15 feet, no, 15 feet long, 7 feet tall, so everything, and the people were life-size, so everything was vertically done, or on your hands and knees, depending on how low you could go. Uh, granite also really likes to be cold. It will take the heat. If you fall asleep on a granite bench, you will be freezing if you wake up. It will take your heat. So it also likes to be cold. It has quartz inside, so it has some water inside, so it also likes to freeze. So at that kind of temperature, the stone is freezing all the time. And you have to cut granite with diamond blades and water saws so the water or the, cools the blade all the time because it will be hot inside the stone and can break the blade, can be very dangerous. So you have to shoot it, shoot it is why I say with water because when I was cutting it, the stone was developing ice as I was cutting. I was polishing ice. I was just, there was water all over the floor which turned into ice so we were cutting holes in the cement floor and putting sub pumps in and pumping the water. At points we'd the holes would freeze and I would find them by stepping through them and it was just one thing after another. So I learned a lot. Uh, we had to tarp off the whole stone and all its areas because the dust was so bad. We had dust collectors and some lights but it was not enough. The dust is so fine it was getting into all the other things in this gentleman's barn so we tarped it off. It was like working in a giant snow globe. Nobody would come inside. It was. I had one point. I had uh, swimming goggles on to try to keep the dust out of my eyes. I could see nothing. Uh, only uh, me and, and one cat, one barn cat, was brave enough to stay there. I mean, he might have been using me for my heat and my lunch, but he was a good companion to have. Uh, he would sit on my legs sometimes as I would carve. I had some some friends that would come. Rowan came and helped me for a month. She uh, is a great worker. She cut the stone and chipped away and and help me with my lunches and dinner. It was great company to have because it was long, cold days. My uncle showed up a couple days a week as part of his workout routine and learned to hammer stone and bring me a coffee. 
I was never so happy to see Tim Hortons, you know. <laughs> it was great. Is that why this is probably one of your most memorable pieces to you, most meaningful pieces? Well, it showed me that even through all this adversity, I still wanted to do it. Losing nerve damage in my hands and feet, none of it mattered. I was just pure will. I wanted to get through this piece. And then watching the effects that it had on people, what art really can do, how many people it can really touch. Like, I had, I had no idea. People were seeing it unfinished, dusty, in the barn. They'd come and poke their head through the door just to see and would start crying. So many people. There were some people that hadn't left their house since their child had passed and came to see the opening of the sculpture. They, they left their house. They came and saw this park is more about bringing light and letting people, giving them space and room to have these memories of their children that have passed. You can still tell stories. Not everybody wants to hear the saddest, but it's about bringing light and love. There's a lot of weddings at this place. There's a lot of school retreats, uh, kayaking things. People have celebrations here rather than sadness. There's a labyrinth that you can tour. There's They plant trees every year for the kids that have passed. Uh, originally, this place, this park, was donated to the International Children's Memorial Park it was an energy regeneration station. It was the first one in PEI, meaning for hydro, but what it turned into is energy regeneration for all of us. It's a spiritual place. Now, that particular event in PEI was not a symposium. You were working on your own. You were the only sculptor there. Um, tell us a little bit about the elements that you have to deal with when you're at an international symposium. Well, there's so many elements to the stone when you're dealing with it, especially far away. You know, you've got different languages, different tools, different uh, equipment situations, food, living situations. Also, how you get along with the other artists. You know, symposium is kind of about, uh, it's not necessarily doing your the best piece or the piece you do in your studio. It's not the, it's the same. It's just doing your concept, your best piece in that environment, in that situation with what's going on all around you. You know, there's uh, that whole mental game of, of sculpting or creating in general. And then there's the physical game of uh, it's super demanding. You're in uh, super hot countries or really environmentally demanding. You know, I'll be at 2,000 feet in Nepal. I train at sea level. We live here on Quadra on these islands. So that should be a different factor for me completely. Also, the different tools. You'll be rigging. You'll be working with a whole different range of experiences, whether or not they're used to the rigging, the guys are used to uh, dealing with uh, uneven stones is one thing, but then when you make them very detailed and delicate and you're dealing with uh, guys that run machines all day but don't handle art necessarily all the time. So you really have to be assertive in uh, your plan, but also open to having the experience around you generate you know, new learning opportunities. But also, it's a bit of a man's world out there, and you kind of, uh, personally, I have to make sure that I stand strong in my process and how I do things and not to get uh, sort of steamrolled into other people's thoughts. Anyway, it's a definite learning curve. You're going to be one of only three women in Nepal. That's right? my understanding. understanding, yeah. And is that normal generally speaking in your symposiums you're a small minority uh absolutely it's it's normal in in the sculpture world to be maybe it's really two of ten or three of fifteen by the sounds of it today i've been really lucky and exposed to symposiums that have been really fair there's been you know two women out of eight which is a little better odds or half and half in vernaco in italy and that was 
eight, so four and four, which was really, really a lovely uh, environment that the, the, the community and the environment that that made happen was really nice, really equally balanced. Everyone's sculpture is, uh, is super valued. Anyway, everyone is anyway, because you're inviting uh, ambassadors from all these countries. It's a really great place to be open to uh, learning experiences, different techniques, ways. There's, you know, probably 10 or 20 ways to do everything in life. So it's really interesting to see how everybody has come up with their process due to their resources and environments. Does that sort of foster an international community in, uh, in the sculptors and the artists field and, and do, you, do you see different do you see the same people at different symposiums sometimes or? absolutely it's uh <laughs> these these uh symposiums are kind of intense situation it's like uh it's like a elite summer camp for adults you know it's super fun and then uh, you make friends for life and i've been actually luckily luckily enough and uh, met sculptures at different symposiums that I'd worked with before you know it's like seeing an old friend at an airport you're like oh my god it's you big hugs and you know at the beginning you don't even speak the same language and at the end there's tears when you leave you know it's pretty awesome I've been invited to people's houses I've been uh a couple times years later I ended up in Germany at my teacher's house I never thought I'd see him yo clay you know I've been invited to one in Germany, I met an Italian woman and invited me back to Carrara, where some of the world's best marble is, and said that she would find me a studio I could work at if I made my way there. So I ended up renting a flat from a sculpture sculptor I know from Ethiopia, stayed at her flat for a month while she was back home, and then I went and sculpted the finest marble in the world, potentially. <laughs> anyway, I put myself in the stone environment again and again, and hopefully I absorbed some of the amazing talent that's around me, pick up the skills, you know, keep putting myself there. Mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to foster everybody else's practice. That's great. Well, eh? it's a shared knowledge, and so why not, you know? Why not share it? Everybody's uh, doing their passion, and you should, we should be building each other up in the world to make that happen. So these are some of those opportunities. In fact, I've met one of the sculptors that is organizing the, the Nepal Symposium in Italy last year. I was just volunteering. I was just there to help the other sculptors, whether it was fetch water or sculpt stone I was you know happy to do whatever and in fact I guess that maybe he saw me working there and uh, that didn't hurt my application you know I was one of 200 applications so and it was juried so it wasn't like he was there but it wasn't a, it didn't hurt it I'm sure also I worked with a man from China and he will be at Nepal sculpture too so that will be really interesting to see him at that symposium how many different sculptors do you have out there in the world, do you think, right now in all uh, these international places? I have three in Italy, plus the two like personal ones I just left there. Uh, three pieces of public art. I have one piece of public art in Germany. I have a couple, no, what, five in Hawaii. One in PEI, that's monumental scale. One in New Brunswick, that's also 15 tons, monumental scale. And uh, so I'm at five countries... Nepal and India in the spring should be six, seven. So I've been at eight symposiums, yeah, something like that, yeah. As I walked by your studio this morning, I noticed that out front, uh, it looks like there's a work in progress of a sculpture of a giant bone. Okay, for instance, um, I'm working on a, a bone sculpture outside. Uh, what I've chosen to do was take a vertebrae of a salmon and enlarge it to a, um, a bigger scale. And I've chosen the vertebrae of the salmon because I think it's uh, very important to, to the people on this coast right now. 
our salmon returns were like five, three percent or something this year, really devastated, and the whole coastline is affected from it, from the sea life, from the the orcas to the you know to the seals and the, all the fish in between, to our peoples that connects us. It's the spine of not only this fish. This fish connects us. This is our spine of our whole coastline. It connects the First Nations people, it connects us all. And not having that fish return, it was a huge impact on all of us this year. You know, the Simpson in the northern part of uh, BC, the First Nations tribe, the Simpson, they say that the, sim- the salmon gave us language. Eating the salmon gave voice. Now we need to be the voices for our salmon who can't speak anymore. This piece uh, out here, I think it will generate a lot of conversation, and I've enlarged the, the piece to show the magnitude, the importance of uh, the conversation, the salmon, the whole effect it has on our coastline, and I think that it's a really, uh, it shouldn't go unnoticed. I hope it becomes a conversation piece. Uh, I've also done uh, a butterfly wing. It's kind of a... if. If a butterfly wing had a skeleton, and that's all that was left, and it was sticking outside of a giant mountain or else jutting outside the coastline of the ocean, what would that be telling us? Would that be telling us our future or our past? Now, is it some big crazy thing that once lived here that somehow the environment or the world is, has forgotten? Is it now being exposed because we're now taking our resources away and this is all that's left? Is this a reminder or is this dictating uh, what our future is going to become? You did a special bone piece in Italy, I understand. Yeah, this summer outside of, uh, outside of Venice in a Carle in the province of Venice. Um, I did a cross section of a bone in a probably one meter, one meter by half scale, and it's uh, the intention was uh, I called it the heart of the marrow. There was a lot of uh, interior texture and to show the a little bit of the flesh still on it, and the Italians called it ossobuco, ossobuco, the whole of the bone. And why I chose that was um, one, I found it here on the Cape Beach, and I thought it was really awesome. And I love finding local treasures in nature that inspire us, and uh, it totally inspires me. And then the other reason I took it is because it's um, it's an image that's seen across cultures, across time. What we've taken is this cross section of this bone, this animal, and it shows it represents, it grounds us for one, and it represents food. It's this nurturing, and for me, sculpture is this thing that nurtures my soul. I feel it right down to my bones. So not only is it nurturing us physically, spiritually, you know, um, also it's, uh, it's pretty yummy. <laughs> I noticed on your website um, you have a picture of a sculpture that you did of an actual a heart, a heart out of stone. What what stone was that, by the way? Do you know the kind of the type of stone? The red one, the rosso. Ah. I, yeah, I've done that that sculpture twice. I've done it once in gray here in granite, and it's on, located on Quadra Island in my garden. I have a little sculpture garden here around my studio. Um, and, I, and then I wanted to repeat the sculpture in a larger size, out of red, and then it actually sits with a bench, and the bench is kind of shaped in the shadow that the heart would cast, so two lovers sitting in the shadow of love. It was kind of a... Uh, I, uh, 
I found another love in Italy. I don't know if it was sculpture or stone, or I left half my heart there. My first impression of Italy, I think northern Italy, uh, would be a place I always return to, and so I kind of wanted to leave that kind of imprint there. Yeah, it was a beautiful time. And I understand I'm, I'm the first to see the prototype of the piece that you're going to sculpt in Nepal. Um, on a much larger scale than what I'm seeing now, I understand. You... Yeah, yeah, totally. It's uh, it's white marble, local, here. We have some wonderful marble here. After getting home from Carrara, Italy, and sculpting some of their marble, I came home and I wanted to try out ours and see how it compared. And it was a beautiful piece of stone. I got really lucky. Uh, I found it here on Quadra Island, but it's a similar stone to be found on Bonanza Lake style of marble outside of Sayward, and it's uh, in the shape of a uh, scapula, kind of. It's kind of a abstract realism, I like to call these kind of bones. I'm not trying to do exactly, rep I'm trying to do a dreamy image that you'd understand. It lets a lot of light in, there's a lot of movement. It's really fine details. I chose a scapula because, one, we have a lot of weight on our shoulders. Two, it's where, it's where our wings would have attached once man had wings. It's like the ultimate dream of flying, and I'm kind of uh, living a little bit of the dream and exposing myself. I can sort of see a little bit of uh, myself in that. And how are you going to mount this? Well, this particular one is more of a gallery piece, so it's mounted with a, a brass base with a brass pin and sits a bit on an angle and is very precarious. But in Nepal... I plan to either have a stone base that it comes out of very rough, or if I only have the chance to have one stone and not two, I will create this image coming out of the base being very rough and having it jutting out of the side and hopefully with the backdrop of these breathtaking mountains it will catch some light and really, really spin the shadows and almost look like it's flying. Wow, and Nepal will get to keep it. Yeah, it'll go in a sculpture garden there, and I'm uh, I'm very proud to have a piece. It's really I really appreciate leaving pieces all over the world. Some people ask if it you don't mind leaving them if you know, but you really come away with the experience, friends for life, and the photo. And going back to visit them is always really fun. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your love of stone with us. Our hearts are going to be with you in Nepal. Touch base when you get back, and you know we'll talk about what's coming next. Yeah, thanks for so much for having me and help me tell my story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, dear CKTZ listeners, for tuning in to today's edition of Cortez Currents. We've been speaking with Julie Glasby, sculpture, stone sculptor from Quadra Island. Please do check out the beautiful artwork, the photos that she has on her website, julieglasby.com, www.julie. G-L-A-S-P as in Paul Y dot com. My name is Francesca and ciao for now. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. Keep my feet on the road to love in this life. You gotta think for yourself.